1: I think the biggest takeaway is I wish I would have seen the writing on the wall and known that I should have been preparing for an exit the entire time to really maximize that exit for me.
2: Welcome to Think Business with Tyler, sharing our methods and strategies for success. Join in on our conversations with business owners as we highlight their triumphs and detail how they overcame the challenges they faced while continuing to grow and scale their business. It's time to think life, think success, and think business with your host, Tyler Martin. Hey, hey, welcome
0: back to another show. Our guest today is Jessica Fialkovich. Jessica is the founder of The Exit Factor, and she specializes in helping business owners successfully exit their business. In this episode, we discuss determining if your business is sellable, how to prepare your business for exit, and why a broker makes sense when selling your business. Now, even if you aren't currently thinking about selling your business, Jessica discusses several things that will help you build a better business. And then someday, if you decide to sell, you will have positioned your business perfectly for sale. I hope you get a lot out of this episode. As always, feel free to shoot me questions, comments, thoughts. I always love to get your emails. My email address is tyler at thinktyler.com. Always happy to hear from you. Let's talk with Jessica. Hey, Jessica, thanks for being on the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Tyler. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for being on the show. So today we're talking about exiting a business. And you have a wealth of experience in the actual nuts and bolts of running, building, Selling businesses. So I love talking when it's, you know, to people that actually have true experiences. It makes it so much more valuable. Where I'd love to start is just tell me a little bit about what you do now and maybe a little bit about your history.
1: Yeah. So what I do now, I run a company called Exit Factor. And what we do is we provide education and consulting to help business owners get their company ready for sale. So they receive the maximum value for their company no matter what happens. But yeah, background. I'm an entrepreneur, right? So (laughs) I've been an entrepreneur uh, since I was 24 years old. I've been in a number of different industries and a few uh, personal exits that really led me down this path.
0: So your first business, Decanted, I want to talk about that a little bit because you were, I think you were at 24, 25 years old when you started that. Yep. And you ultimately went on to sell it at, I think, 27, 28 years old. So you sold it pretty quickly. Yeah. Can we start with just what was Decanted and what caused you to even start a business that early?
1: Yeah. So we, my husband and I, when I say we, we started that company together. We were both working for the same commercial real estate development company in 2008 and were part of the mass layoffs that everyone was during that time. So fortunately we we really didn't have a lot of personal overhead and we felt like that was the time to take the leap and start our own business. I called a bit of my early life crisis. We had friends that owned a wine store and we're like, hey, that looks fun. They just drink wine all day and make good money and we'll just do that. So that was, you know, about as much thought as we put into the first business. <laughs> but we started as a small boutique, a wine retail shop. And then because there's there's so much opportunity um, during the recession, like there is in lots of industries during recessions and depressions, the market actually took us into trading and dealing in high-end luxury wines online and, and through our store across the US, Canada, and into Hong Kong. So uh grew very quickly. Even you know the first six months out of the gate, we got pulled... Actually, it was like the third day in business, we got pulled into that luxury wine market and really set off on a whole different page. Path than we had anticipated.
0: So that's interesting. Something you just brought up. You said the market took you in that direction. What's your thoughts around when someone starts a business? A lot of times we're taught to pick your niche or pick what you're going to do and really early in the journey. Do you feel like, is that a good way to approach it? Or is it kind of like the market? You got to feel out the market to really decide which direction you want to go.
1: Yeah, so I'm, I think I'm in the minority here, but I really don't believe in this whole pick your niche and stick to your niche early on. I find when you're in the startup mode, it's also like survival mode, right? But that's when you have the most creativity as an entrepreneur, and you have the ability to try all these different things and see what works and see what market's going to respond to you and, and what in the marketplace is going to respond to you. And I think if you're so narrowly focused in your niche, you're going to miss out on a lot of opportunities. So I've I've never been a big proponent of of picking that specific niche, or if you are picking a niche, like maybe not drilling it down so much into like industry or something like that. Like we all hear just making sure that you're leaving it wide open enough to allow yourself that creativity.
0: Yeah. I so agree with you. Our philosophies are the same. I feel like, You know, I hear a lot of times being people being taught to go pick your nets, get really focused down. And I think that's a shame because, you know, a lot of times you don't even know if it's something you like, you don't really know the demand. And I feel like you miss the opportunity to the market to find you. Those exact words you use is like, if you didn't have an open mind and you were just stuck in this little channel of what you were going to do, you know, you probably would have never observed new opportunities and took you in the direction that turned out to allow you to ultimately sell the business.
1: Yeah, I completely, I completely agree. So, and it, it is. I still, to this day, people will be like, "Well, what's your niche?" and they'll, they'll grill me, and because I, I won't narrow it down as much as most business owners have been taught over the last decade to do so. But I believe in and leaving it open to opportunity, and and figuring out how I can best serve my clients, you know, whoever they are, and just look for that that solution there.
0: Right. Now, I will agree if something takes you in a direction, it makes sense to really hone in and own that area, especially if you have a passion about it. I know sometimes, you know, people have passions about or don't have passions about things that end up kind of taking off. And if they go in that niche, they basically own an area they're not really passionate about. So sometimes you know, there's just all kinds of different factors. I love just your thought process. I want to switch gears here. So I do want to talk about the selling of the business. So two and a half years later, pretty young company. Mm -hmm. Was there anything you learned when you sold two and a half years later that kind of, I don't know, like, I wouldn't do it this way again if I were to sell? Or were there some takeaways that you had in that early journey?
1: Yeah, I think I mean the the ultimate thing, and, and the reason I do what I do now is as I would have prepared the business for sale early on. So the reason we did really well is because we were in the midst of a recession and there was a reduced, reduced level of competition. That was one reason. The second reason we did really well is that we were first to the online marketplace for luxury wine collectors. And if I really would have looked into the future planning, I would have known that both of those windows of opportunity. Would close in the near future, right? The economy would recover. We would get more competitors. And, you know, yeah, we were one of the first to market online, but there would be people to follow us soon after. So I think the biggest takeaway is I wish I would have seen the writing on the wall and known that I should have been preparing for an exit the entire time to really maximize that exit for me. Now, like, we did great, but it was more of a knee-jerk reaction when those two realizations hit me of like, hey, we have competition now and now we're just competing on price. Like there's not a whole lot of differentiator, right?
0: Yeah. Was there a high when you actually sold? Like in terms of, you know, when you, it really closes, like you either get the money or however the end result was, did you get a high from it?
1: Yes, yeah, so but it was short-lived. It's interesting. <laughs> so we closed on the sale of the business and we were located in Naples, Florida at the time. And so we went over to the Ritz in Palm Beach, which was like our favorite place at the time. It's now the O. And we went over like that night and it that night was fun. We went out to a nice dinner and everything. And then the next morning, we woke up and we were, I'd say more exhausted and depressed than we were elated. Right. So leading up to the sale... We were, we still had the retail store. So, we're working retail hours, we're working with collectors, I, I mentioned on two continents, right? And we're dealing with wineries on three continents. <laughs> so, our working hours were insane. And so, the, like the burnout was super real, but also the waking up the day after and realizing that my whole life, my whole identity for the last three years had been about decanted. Like, you know, we were the wine couple and now all of that's gone. And because we sold for burnout reasons, like we didn't have plans for the day after what we were going to do next. It was like, all right, now we wake up and like, we have nothing. Like, what do we do today? So that was, yeah, that was not elation. It was more depression. It was really interesting. And that's, I talk a lot about that now with our clients because people don't think about it. But as a business owner, when everything's been wrapped around your role in the business for whether it's been two years, 10 years, 40 years, right? The day it goes away, it's not always a great feeling, right? Even if that's what you've been working for.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Particularly when I sold my second business, me and partner, it was actually anticlimactic because you you build up like it's this big event. But when you go through due diligence, in particular, ours kind of lasted a long time. It was a little bit hairy. There were many times where we thought the deal was going to fall apart. But then when we get to the end of it, it's like, that's it? Like, just, you know, okay. (laughs) You know, it's just, it's weird. It's like, nothing really changes. I mean, maybe, you know, depending, you know, in in our case, we got some money. So money showed up in the bank, which was a cool feeling, but it's like life kind of feels the same. It's like, I almost feel like, I wonder if you have to, do you spend time coaching your clients? It sounds like you do. You almost kind of have to prepare them for that in a way, because I feel like there is a certain buildup that you feel like something's going to happen at the end.
1: Yeah. And it is, it's so funny. Like when even we talk about the process, I'm like, the closing and the day of closing is the most anti-climatic event you're you're going to have in your life. Like literally you're gonna sign all the documents ahead of time, and then a wire is gonna show up in your account on the day, and like that'll feel good for 10 seconds, and then you'll move on. So I I do coach our clients, I talk a lot about having something to run towards. So whether that's a vacation, um, spending some time on some charity work or another business, spending time with family, like have some plans at least for the first six months. Months after you sell the business, so you don't feel like this this drop off of, of not having anything to do. Because we've seen, you know, I've been a part of over seven hundred deals now, and, and we've seen, unfortunately, quite a few of those where the sellers haven't. They've just been running from the business, right? They just want to get away from the business. They don't care what they're doing next, and those are the people that struggle the most with the day after, the month after, or the year after.
0: Right? Is burnout one of the more common reasons that? People want to sell a business? What what are the common reasons that people said, hey, I want to get out?
1: Yeah, actually burnout's number one. Okay. So, and if you look at the reasons people sell, 95% of people sell for personal reasons, not for like some exit strategy plan or timeline they put in place five years ago, the top reasons in those ninety-five percent are burnout. Another opportunity that pops up that might be better than the current business they're running, uh, family dynamic issues, which could be relocation of a spouse's job, it could be divorce. Unfortunately, illness is in those those top five too, and then the D's death and divorce, right too. So yeah,
0: yeah. So switching gears, what makes a business sellable? Like, are there some attributes that really stand out that make it sellable?
1: Yeah. So first, one of the myths I like to dispel is that any business is sellable right? It just really depends on how much you're going to get for the business. And if you're going to get it in cash and have to do or have to do like financing, right? There's businesses that sell for a few hundred dollars every year. There's thousands of businesses that sell for a few thousand and then you get up into the millions. And obviously there's less of those, but what makes a business more valuable than others or maximizing the value. There's three buckets I focus on. So the first is profitability, right? So a company... The return on investment you have from owning a company is the profit that it produces for you as an owner. And when you go to sell a business, that's the number one thing that buyers are focused on. What is the return this business is going to give me through profit, through my salary, things like that. We call it owner's discretionary earnings. So that's the first bucket. The second bucket is making sure you relinquish control and let the business run itself and not it be so focused on you. So in the business brokerage world, it's called being an owner absentee versus an owner operator. And that doesn't mean like not working in the business. It just means that every single decision in the business can't rely on you as an owner and strategically getting yourself out of some, you know, some roles, some risky roles over time makes it more valuable. And the last thing, and and we talk about like this a lot, and this is a boring one, but it's just financial record keeping. So you mentioned due diligence. Due diligence is a huge part of the deal process. It's probably the most exhausting part of the deal process for everyone involved, seller, buyer, all their partners and advisors. But it's a very intense inspection period. And the basis of due diligence is financial record keeping. So if you go through the deal process and you get your business under contract, and then you get into due diligence and you just don't have not necessarily like just clean books and records, but updated books and records, you don't understand your books and records, it's going to be a much higher likelihood that the deal either falls apart or the buyer is going to renegotiate for a much lower price point. So those are the three buckets. Profitability, the owner's role, reducing the owner's role over time, and cleanliness of financial
0: records. So how often do you see deals fall apart because financial records aren't good or just in general, maybe start with how many deals fall apart? How many deals go start out and then they fall apart and then how many are related to actually poor financial support?
1: Yeah. Statistically, 50% of all deals will fall apart through in due diligence. So you have a one in two chance of making it through due diligence. I do see our clients that are prepared in advance are more likely to go through with that. So actually I think we've got right now, it's nearly a hundred percent who've gone through with our clients. But to your question, I think almost all of them start with financial record keeping. So one of my friends recently described it as like your financial records are kind of the roadmap to the business, right? And when buyers are looking at your financial records and their advisors, their bankers, their attorneys, everything starts with the financial records. And if they see something amiss, it's like pulling a string, right? So they start pulling on that string and something starts to unravel. But that's where they start their due diligence process. And, and honestly, if they're in if the financial records are in really good shape, there's not a whole lot of strings to pull, right? So I think, you know, I wouldn't say a hundred percent, but nearly a hundred percent of of deal issues start with just those financial statements.
0: Sad thing too is so many business owners oftentimes kind of overlook. The financial record keeping part, I think they do a lot. Do the minimum effort, and they hire a bookkeeper. But oftentimes, a bookkeeper isn't particularly good, or is just kind of slopping everything together, and it ultimately is hurting the value of their business and the history of their business, which is arguably the more important part. Is if you you're, if you have that nice, pretty, clean history, maybe showing trending or growth. I mean, a buyer likes that; they love to see that history. I would imagine. What do you do, like, in terms of creating value? So. It's going to be those, is it kind of processes and systems as well as maybe deeper delegation? Is I mean, what do you work on first? I guess it's maybe the record keeping or if, if someone comes to you today and they want to sell, what's their ideal time to, timeline to sell? Is it is there a certain timeline that you would prefer to see?
1: Yeah. So honestly, the first thing we work on is emergency planning. So okay. what we work on first is, is if there's books and records issues, that's the number one thing we tackle because my philosophy is you should be running a business like you can sell it at any time. Like I said, like 95% of the reasons people sell are not pre-planning reasons. Like you can't pre-plan hitting burnout, right? right? So we're we're working on emergency planning first. So getting books and records in shape to ensure that if the business has to sell a month, two, three months from now, it's sellable, right? So that's the first that we work on. The next is the profitability. So when when we're trying to build value in a company, obviously we're gonna recommend things to like the owner get out, getting out of the way, there may be some key hires that need need to be be made. Or if not key hires, maybe they have to invest in technology for automation or outsourcers. So we have to unlock some profitability in the company so we're not spending more money than we're making. And we're, we're keeping that baseline profitability as we're trying to grow and increase the value. It actually goes in the reverse of how I mentioned them, but books and records first, that's emergency planning. Next is profitability, is unlocking the profit that's already there in the company. And then third is getting the owner out. There's other things that we we focus on in different companies too. There's actually 12 different value creation methods that we've identified through our buyer interviews. But those are the top three buckets. And you touched on some of them, like some of its processes and systems, things like that. But there's a lot to unpack in the owner's role and how do you accomplish getting them out of the seats, um, and sometimes processes and systems are are one of the pieces to that puzzle.
2: If you're a business owner feeling stuck in your business, overwhelmed, responsible for everything that happens, and working long hours, Tyler helps his clients develop processes, hire high-performing team members, and better understand their financial metrics and numbers to allow for a more predictable, less hands-on business. To schedule a free, no-pressure consultation, head to thinktyler.com and click the meeting button. Tyler would love to see if he can help you work on your business, not in your business. Schedule a consultation today at thinktyler.com. Think life, think success, think business.
1: There's a lot to unpack in the owner's role and how do you accomplish getting them out of the seats? Um, And sometimes processes and systems are, are one of the pieces to that puzzle
0: is there a certain timeline attached to that like would it be you know if someone came to you today and say i want to sell would you say come back in 3 years or let's start the plan for the next 3 years or what would that timeline be in in kind of a perfect world if it couldn't be from the beginning
1: yeah so it depends really on the owner's goals right so about half of our clients come to us and they don't have a specific goal in mind they don't say hey i want to sell you know in 2 years or i want to i don't want to sell for 2 million dollars like they don't know but they do know that they're getting towards the end right? And they they want to be prepared. Now, the other half come to us with specific goals. And if they have a specific goal, then through our intake process, which is called our exit assessment, we can develop a timeline for them. So for example, we have one client that's worth about a half a million dollars right now. She wants to exit for $5 million. There's some math we have to do to get her from 500,000 to 5 million in a time frame, in which that has to happen based on the growth rate of the company and what's, what's going on with different qualitative factors of it. So we're able to help them on based on either their goal for exit value, or if someone came to us, we have another client. It's like, I need to be out in three years. My kids are graduating from high school then that's when I want to retire. So then we use that three-year timeline and we say, all right, how much value can we create for you? Based on the business that exists today, in order to get you out in three years. So, half the clients come and they're like, just make it as nice as you can. So, when the bay burnout hits, which I know is coming soon, like I can exit. And the other half, like, have pre established goals um, that will back into a timeline and exit value.
0: Got it. Now, you've mentioned profit. Oftentimes drives value. Can you get into the, you know, not, we don't want to get too, too deep, but I just the nuts and or not the nuts and bolts, but the top level of how we derive value from the profit.
1: Yeah. It's an interesting valuation methods are very interesting. I call them part art and part science. So the part science part is, is the profit. And we've been saying profit, but it's actually defined by an earnings metric called EBITDA, which is earnings before income, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Sometimes we'll go a step further and we'll include um, the owner's salary, which is called owner's discretionary earnings. But that's that's the science part. So that's a number you can calculate on your P&Ls, or if you can't, your accountant can calculate it for you. The more profit, the more earnings, the more EBITDA you have, The more money the business is worth. Now, the other side's the art part. That's the qualitative side. So that's taking those, you know, 12 value drivers that we've identified through buyer interviews. And, you know, buyer buyers pay more for the owner being out of the business. They pay more for consistent revenue. They pay more for a buyer good company reputation. And how that's calculated is based on a multiple. So your ultimate value of your business is your EBITDA times a multiple of earnings. It could be anywhere between 1 and 10 times on average, and that gives you your value. But what makes your company a 1 versus a 10 times depends on those qualitative factors of your company and your industry that you're involved in too.
0: Very cool. In terms of do you ever see where a buyer might come in and, and you've established value around the profit? And then as you're going through that process, maybe they change, I don't want to say change the formula, but they, to your point, maybe it's how well known the company is or how well respected it is. And then they start to kind of negotiate based on these other, maybe it's the other 12 factors in terms of reducing the sales price. Does that ever happen where it's not just strictly on, because a lot of times we're trained at that EBITDA times a multiple, but do sometimes other factors drive price down?
1: Yes, yes. Okay. I'd say almost always there's a renegotiation through due diligence, either reducing the price or restructuring the deal, maybe requiring some seller financing or things like that. There are buyers out there too and you know I think there's good and bad people in in every type of career, but there's you know there's some buyers that their whole game and their whole plan is to get a business under contract. Wear the owner down, and then in due diligence, they're going to reduce the price to what they really were going to pay for. But they knew they wouldn't have won the deal with that original offer. So you do have to be careful of that on the on the seller side. But almost always, there's there's some type of renegotiation and due diligence. So I tell sellers just be careful, like don't get attached to the offer that you get in the business because that's that's probably not what you're going to walk away with. Right? There's still a lot of work to be done to get the deal
0: closed. Right. And it's so emotional. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just, you get so wrapped up in counting the money before you've got it or whatever. And it's very easy. So it's probably having someone like you, you know, along with the seller probably helps diffuse some of that emotional attachment that can, you know, we, when we were emotional beings, sometimes we can make poor decisions when we're emotional. So hopefully that can, you know, minimize that.
1: Yeah, it's important to have somebody alongside, like you know, whether it's it's myself in the beginning with the exit consulting and coaching, or hiring a business broker and investment banker. Like some of these buyers are professionals, and they know that it's an emotional process; it's a draining process. So they know, for example, like you know, average due diligence is thirty to sixty days. Some professional buyers will know if they ask for ninety or one hundred and twenty days. Like they they don't really need that extra time, but they know it's going to wear the seller down, right? Because in the back of the seller's mind, they're getting emotionally attached to the outcome of the deal. But every day that goes by, they're more emotionally drained and they can't imagine going through this again with another buyer, right? And so sometimes these professional buyers, that's their plan. So we have to be careful with that. And you have to have the right team alongside you to make sure you're not going into one of those situations and if you do get into one of those situations really just protecting you from the the emotional and the the drainingness of everything that's going on.
0: Yeah, I can relate to that. You do get exhausted and you do get to a point where you're just kind of like whatever they say, you know. Yep. You don't want to start over. I mean, I can so relate when you say that. Now, that does bring up a question though. Brokers, a lot of brokers. I know this is what you do. A lot of brokers, in my experience, I shouldn't say a lot, but some brokers that I've interfaced with are just horrendously bad. They don't really know a lot about it's no different than real estate agents, frankly. I think Uh the barrier is probably low to get into this world. And, you know, I've had I've sold two businesses and both times I had a broker, both times we found our own buyers, you know, and that's maybe not totally reflective of the broker in the second case, but in both cases, I didn't feel like we were getting the counsel like you kind of would think. So where my question is going to go is, what do you look for in a good broker if you're going to use a broker? And why would you use a broker over selling it yourself?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I I would say... To answer the second question first, I would always use a broker over selling it yourself. Even if you have a buyer, look, there's terrible people in every industry, right? And and I do, I get interviewed a lot on this. And I think business brokers sometimes do get a bad rap for the few out there that are not good at their jobs, right? But there's some fantastic representatives. So in order to find those fantastic advisors and representatives, the first thing I always ask brokers is, how many deals have you been involved in in the last year? Right. I don't care how many you've done in, in your lifetime career. Like, how are active are you in the market right now? Cause that's reflective of they know what's going on from a macro to micro level and every negotiation standpoint. And their experience is important because the best brokers are creative. Right. Another thing I, I find that sellers overestimate is like the finding the buyer process. Right. Good brokers find you a buyer. Right. The great brokers are the ones that can get the deals done. That's the difference between 50% falling out of contract and, and you going through with your, your business sale. So asking about that experience will give them the creativity to fuel the business getting sold, like the ultimate, the deal consummating. And then the other one is, and this is more of a cautionary thing. I find a lot of business owners are like, well, I need to find a broker that knows how to sell businesses like mine, like in my industry. And this goes back almost to our niche conversation. So like doing taxes for a business doesn't matter if you're, you know, in professional services or blue collar, it's the same thing with selling a business, right? The structure and the process of selling one business over another is basically the same. So I find a lot of, a lot of business owners and sellers will get caught up of like, oh, I need to find a a business broker that knows how to do advertising agencies. And what ends up happening is they'll hire that specialist and it removes that creativity process because they've only done advertising agency sales. They've never seen any other transactions and they only have a pool of advertising agency buyers. They're not opening up themselves to the entire marketplace. So that, that's thats the second part of like how you find a, a great broker. It's like you don't narrow it just to your industry. There's not that much industry expertise that's going to elevate them above just a broker that's super active in the marketplace and gets a ton of deals done, even if they're a generalist.
0: Yeah. So on that note I want to uh, talk about. So what are if you're going to sell your business what are common questions a seller is going to be thinking about? I know from your book Getting the Most for Selling Your Business by the way great book. Thanks. Getting the Most for Selling Your Business. You have a checklist of of I think 10 items. What are just a couple that really stand out that a seller is going to think about just off the top of their head?
1: Yeah, first one is always confidentiality, right? So, like, how do I market my business for sale without everybody knowing that it's for sale? And and should I keep it confidential? The answer is you should always keep it confidential. We just talked about this long, emotional draining process, and I say, you know, outside of all the business reasons, you should keep it confidential, which there's a lot. Also, I feel like as owners, we have a right or a responsibility to protect those around us from that emotional roller coaster that we bear the responsibility of enduring. So, we don't want our employees to know. We don't want our customers to know. And there is a way to keep it confidential through the process. So, that's the number one. Tied into that is number two is is always about legacy, right? So, you know, how is this business sale going to affect my employees, going to affect my customers, going to affect my stakeholders? Those are really the top two questions and concerns I'd say that most business owners have. And again, it's related back to the people, the people that help them build these businesses.
0: Yeah. Funny story, true story. So, I was working with a client many years ago. I'm a CPA. So, way back in the day, I used to have a CPA firm and I had a client that was going through a sale. I was getting copied on all the emails as things were happening. And the client, you know how when a company will have like you just send it to one email address and it'll send an email to the entire company? Distribution list, yes. So, a client inadvertently typed to the distribution list something about the sale. I can't remember what it said, but it was something along the lines. Yeah, this is going great. I'm glad we're going to be able to sell or whatever. And so it went to the entire company. And so needless to say, he tried to recall it. He couldn't. So he had to immediately, to your point, like not wanting to tell the staff until it's the right time. He had to kind of do an emergency meeting there shortly after and just let the team know what was going on. It was like a 25-person company. So we had to let them know. But that confidentiality piece is huge. and It was kind of brought back memories of when things, can go wrong.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I've got so many cautionary tales like that. So that was um, that's unfortunate because that's just like a, an error, right? It's not even yeah, like human driving. error. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, but yes.
0: Anyway, uh, you know. So the other thing I want to talk with you about when you're going through that buying process is it is part of getting top value having multiple offers or multiple interested parties. I mean, is that part of the, also the value that you bring? What's your opinion on that?
1: Yeah, I mean when you have a competitive business bidding process when you have multiple buyers interested in the company you're always going to get more money right okay. otherwise you're just you're in a stronger negotiating standpoint right so and i always relate kind of people ask a lot about macroeconomic situations and how they affect small business sales and things like that. And I always go back to it. It's more about supply and demand, right? So there's always many more buyers looking for businesses for sale than there are good businesses to sell. And if you're one of those good businesses that attracts multiple offers, you're always going to get more money, but you're also going to get better terms, right? So part of this, this preparation of getting your business ready for sale before you're even ready to sell is positioning it so that when it hits the market you're going to attract multiple offers in the first week or month. It's not going to be sitting on the market and you know brokers are going to have to go find buyers for you. The buyers are going to come to your business. Got it.
0: Now, in terms of the, the back end of a deal, you mentioned due diligence is a tough part. What should you expect in terms of due diligence? Is that like, does every business, ours in, in our case, I think went on for a month, maybe maybe it was even two months. Is that normal for every business? Is it based on different sizes of companies or sometimes smaller companies go faster? How does that work?
1: Yeah, it really depends on the size and the complexity of the business, right? And I'd say the preparedness of the seller because a lot of the... What I'd say is not the original timeline for due diligence, but a lot of the reason due diligence gets extended... Is because the seller doesn't have their records in order, right? So that's another reason to prepare. And if you can deliver everything on time, you can shorten due diligence. But more complex businesses will need longer due diligence periods, especially if there's like professional licensing or anything like that, the buyer has to take care of. And then, you know, less complex businesses, smaller businesses, sometimes you see those due diligence periods as short as a week or two
0: how Now do you let's, let's use an example. Company's two million dollars a year. it's profitable. It's, it's got a decent bottom line, maybe 10% to the bottom line. Mm-hmm. What type of buyer is going to buy a company in that size? I mean you're not going to find private equity for example, I wouldn't think at that level. So who, what type of buyers are we looking for at that level as, just as an example?
1: Yeah. So most of the buyers in the marketplace at that level, about 80% of them are what we call individual buyers. Okay. So these are people leaving corporate careers and they're entering entrepreneurship through acquisition instead of starting their own company. There are a smaller segment of buyers that are what's called strategic and synergistic buyers or like competitors, things like that. Private equity really, for the most part, private equity has limited or no interest in anything below a million dollars
0: in EBITDA. Wow, a million dollar thing about, okay, that's not too, I mean, I guess we're saying, what's that? A typical $10 million company, probably give or take?
1: Typical. Yeah. If you're looking at a 10% profit margin, you know, obviously more revenue for less profit margin, but
0: yeah. Sure. Okay. Interesting. Hey, so I got one final question, just kind of a fun question. I always like to end the show with uh, if you've got something that you've learned along your journey, whether it be a business or a life tip that you can share with us.
1: Yes, actually, mine's kind of a bit of both. So, one of my good friends about 10 years ago told me, you know what, Jess, you can't make all the mistakes in life yourself. You have to learn from others. And I wish I would have learned that lesson a lot earlier in my career. And I've got great mentors around me and things like that now. But, you know, just leveraging mentorship, coaching, education like, no, I don't, we don't have time in this life to learn all the mistakes and recover from them ourselves. Right.
0: Yeah, that's a great one. I love that. Hey, so I'll put this in the thinktyler.com show notes. Your website is exitfactor.com. And then we also want folks to go to exitfactor.com slash podcast. If there's anywhere else people wanted to go to reach out to you, any other sites?
1: No, that landing page, exitfactor.com slash podcast has links to all of our social media. You can get uh, some free downloadables and there's a form if you want to connect with me directly.
0: Awesome. Well, Jessica, you're awesome. This is a great show. You gave us a lot of wisdom to share. Look forward to
2: talking with you again in the future.
1: You too. Thanks so much, Tyler.
2: Thank you.